Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Time for another keto show. It's your host, Brad Kearns. Life. I've been looking for a dame that would want to be my wife. That was my intention, babe. If we cannot make babies, maybe we can make some time. Lots of pretty you and me, Rotic City, come alive. Oh, my daughter got me so good the other day. As I was singing along to the song in the car, as I've been known to do on podcasts or on car rides, and she said, uh, who's singing this song? And I said, it's Prince in this example. And she goes, let's leave it to him then, huh? Oh my gosh. Okay, so let's get into some preguntas del Cosas de Quito. And the first one, going right into it. And I'm going to have the objective of answering a lot of questions instead of going off on tangents with just a few. Well, there's plenty of those shows out there. And let's see what we can do here, because we have some really sharp questions from our audience. Uh, a lot of these questions come from the lively Keto Reset Facebook group. Now with 23,000 members going strong, lots of engagement, uh, where you don't have any of the nonsense of people trying to sell stuff and pitch you when you're on there. So it's real community effort. We have numerous moderators doing a great job. Uh, Dr. Lindsay Taylor presiding over the uh, the group and picking out incredible talents like Layla McGowan in Alabama. Her Instagram is strong and well-fed with a great photographic collection of her main passions of getting strong in the gym and cooking fabulous, delicious food. And Lindsay and Layla are working on uh, an incredible new cookbook called Keto Passport. It's going to come out in the fall, and it honors Layla's uh, rich ethnic tradition because of her heritage, uh, I believe, like uh, a mix of Polish and Asian and all these unique creative dishes from around the world that are all keto-friendly. So watch out for that one, as well as the Keto Reset Cookbook and the Keto Reset Instant Pot Cookbook of which that dynamic duo worked on extensively with Mark, too. We're all big Instant Pot fans all of a sudden. Amazing stuff. So into the questions, we go with Rebecca says, Hey, how do you know you're fat adapted? I've been keto since August. On the holidays, I slacked and had to do the keto flu again, had to suffer through that again. Then I got back to it, started intermittent fasting with zero problems. And that's saying something since I'm an eater. And then I went off the bandwagon again, family vacation. My relapse lasted about a week. And the strange thing was when I cut my carbs again, there was no keto flu, loss of energy or carb cravings. Plus, I got into keto in one day. Is that fat adaptation? And what now? Ooh, interesting stuff. My first uh, reaction to the question and the wording of the question is I want us to all reflect for a bit on what the healthy... Uh, correct approach is all about. And what we're seeing out there is possibly uh, too much stress and pressure associated with dietary transformation. 
So when you use words like relapse and going into the keto flu, uh, it is our firm belief, this is what Mark and I tried so hard to communicate in the book, uh, and Lindsay with her messages on the group, uh, that this keto flu and this aspect of suffering and pushing through it, and don't worry, it'll get better someday, uh, we can skip over that and not really have to deal with that type of nonsense. I think that's just an indication of a flawed approach. And when, when you get the keto flu, uh, for those of you not familiar with that term, people are talking about those afternoon blues where they want to retreat back to their old high-carbohydrate favorite snacks or just feel a general sense of malaise and fatigue as they're transitioning over to a new way of eating. So I feel like if that's happening, um, you might not be ready. So you might want to get your carbs back into a pattern where the reduction is more gradual, or you might have a flaw in your approach where you're not eating healthy foods, you're eating a bunch of processed keto snacks instead, or you're not consuming enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium uh, to account for the reduction in inflammation and fluid retention in cells throughout your body. So all those things could be happening that are causing uh, what seems like the keto flu but really it's something that you can write just with uh, tweaking your approach a little bit. So let's uh, strive to not even bother with that and always feel good, even in the process of a sincere dietary transformation. That's why the Keto Reset Diet approach uh, is designed to uh, a step-by-step staging process where you feel great and you're ready for the next phase rather than you plunge into the next phase and cross your fingers and hope for the best. So back to the question from Becca, and a very interesting uh, conclusion there, showing that she's going into these patterns where she's working hard, going into keto, and then falling off for whatever reason, uh, vacation, uh, you know, outside lifestyle circumstances, and then doing a much better job after the third bout. Yeah, sounds good. That's kind of what I reported in my show where I Uh, talked about just an update on what my keto journey's been like lately here in the uh, early spring of 2018. And I feel like uh, the efforts, all the efforts made toward carb restriction, fasting, uh, upregulating internal fat burning and ketone production, they all count for something. And this is uh, mentioned in the book too, where don't feel discouraged if you have a relapse or a binge on your cruise or Uh, uh, for whatever reason, you're off the keto train because all that hard work you did, it all counts toward your uh, ability to uh, improve metabolic flexibility. And the more you do it, the longer lasting the benefits will be. So if you're in and out of this keto thing, but you're trying and you're getting some good work done, you're getting some good fasting done for certain periods of time, uh, you know, whether it's winter, spring season, and then summer, you're eating more fruits and you're out of keto, you're going to progress and get better and better until you really can proclaim you're at the highest level of metabolic flexibility. And on my show, my update show, I was saying that, you know, now when I hit those sweet potato fries with a little bit of powdered sugar sprinkled on top at the luxury movie theater, even some melted butter goes well with that powdered sugar. Um, I don't feel any ill effects. I don't fall asleep in the latter part of the movie. Whereas years ago, uh, that might not have been the case. I might have felt that insulin response a little more, but I'm improving metabolic flexibility and insulin sensitivity to the extent that I can handle a pretty significant fluctuation in the amount of carbohydrates I consume each day. 
So maybe I'm living in a pattern where if you look at my last six months or last year, I'm going anywhere from 20 grams at a minimum on a day of a lot of fasting or some zero-carb meals, and then possibly up to 200 grams or more when I do a long bike ride or some endurance activity that's really pushing the boundaries of my, of my fitness. And I have no problem. There's no difference in my energy levels. There's no ill effects. And I think that's something that we can all strive for as we talk about operating in the keto zone. Mark Sisson did a good video about this uh, when we were uh, promoting the Keto Reset Mastery course and talking in much more detail on the course. We got some great commentary from Mark, uh, a couple uh, shoots at his house, and that's all residing at ketoreset.com. So I really encourage you to enroll in the course and hear from the world's leading experts, Dr. Kate Shanahan was on there with some great insights. Uh, We got Leanne Vogel. We love everybody who's promoting the keto scene. We're not competing with other authors or other promoters. That's absolute nonsense. Uh, Melissa Hartwig, I love seeing her name on the bestseller list for perennial. She's going for dozens and dozens of weeks right up there with her Whole30 stuff because that means that the primal paleo keto ancestral culture is coming into the mainstream with more and more acceptance. Uh, Of course, we wouldn't mind trading places with her and putting up those numbers for our own work, but it will come, and this is called the economic theory of abundance. I studied economics at UC Santa Barbara, woo, woo, and I never forgot that insight from one of the classes because we often think in terms of scarcity, especially in the workplace and the company's expanding and you're worried that someone's going to come in and take your territory or whatever, but a rising tide floats all boats. And so that's why the love goes out to everyone promoting uh, this wonderful way of life and a way of eating that can uh, solve some lifelong uh, metabolic problems for so many people. Love to see the success stories at markstateleyapple.com. So congratulations, uh, Rebecca. You're doing well. And then her final question is, what now? And what now is, enjoy your life. Uh, Find out the dietary patterns that work the best for you. And I think the moral of the story from your story is going back and forth in and out of a strict adherence to keto and then a little bit loose has not really harmed you. I mean, it was tough at the outset, and now you're saying that you can handle these bouts better. So maybe just allow them a little more leeway into your life. And if you do have, and this goes to Rebecca or anybody listening, if you do have a distinct goal, especially the reduction of excess body fat, we know with great certainty that keto is extremely effective for this. Uh, primal paleo low-carb eating is extremely effective to lower insulin, turbocharge fat burning, and get you down to your desired body composition relatively quickly for what you've been through your whole life if you've been fighting this battle. And boy, what a wonderful way to know that the solution is right there in front of you. You just have to get uh, metabolic flexibility going, get fat adapted going, so it's not difficult to fast or eat keto for a while and dial things in, and then you can loosen things up uh, as you go along. Okay, I promised for quick answers, but that opened up some good ideas. So next, Casey, does anybody have input or experience related to kidney stones and keto? My brother-in-law started keto in September. He's had to have surgery two times for kidney stones, and now he's getting another one. Is keto, in fact, the cause? Kidney stones are a frequent, this is a quote from the uh, article that he shows, Kidney stones are a frequent occurrence on the ketogenic diet. One in 20 children develop kidney stones per year, uh, kids uh, battling epilepsy. Um, Yeah, this is out of the realm of podcast host sounding off with an opinion. 
and into the medical realm. Uh, but a lot of times those kidney stones are attributed to dehydration or other adverse lifestyle practices. So to make that connection between kidney stones and keto, to make that direct connection, like that's a risk for keto, that one I would have a lot of trouble with. Um, however, that reduction in inflammation and water retention throughout the body could have a, uh, a disruptive effect on certain people if they're unlucky or what have you. So you really have to pay careful attention to your electrolyte balance. We give some recommendations in the Keto Reset Diet. I believe it's in the advanced section, the troubleshooting section, the appendix. Uh, Dom D'Agostino says that uh, you might want to put in uh, five grams of extra salt shaken on your food uh, to account for ketogenic. Um, there's a lot of uh, people saying um, 400 milligrams of magnesium as a supplement intake is great and 1,000 milligrams of potassium. So you can find that in supplement form or you can go for those leafy greens and nutrient-dense foods rather than eating uh, junk food like in the old days when people were on Atkins, they didn't care about the macronutrient quality, they just cared about the numbers, and we're trying to evolve beyond that, uh, show the love for the plant-based eating movement, and completely agree with uh, emphasizing colorful, nutrient-dense plant life as the centerpiece of your diet, taking up the most space on the plate, uh, but then also allowing for the inclusion of well-chosen animal products and high-fat animal foods and uh, plant foods, such as avocados, coconuts, uh, things like that that contribute a lot of fat. Uh, some people are against consuming those in the low-fat camp, but obviously they've been shown to have tremendous health benefits. So we're talking about a high-fat diet when we're keto, but it doesn't mean excluding uh, nutrient-dense plant life. Okay, Michelle. I have a very newbie keto novice question. I'm trying to teach my body not to eat around the clock and even just to learn how to fast for 14 hours. If I can eat from uh, 8 o'clock to 1800, oh man, those military times mess me up. Let's say 8 in the morning to 6 p.m. Will I break my fast by having cream in my coffee at 5.30 a.m.? I have a feeling the answer is yes which breaks my heart a little bit. I'm really attached to my morning cream and my coffee date with my hubby at 5.30 a.m. Congratulations for that positive relationship attribute of a standing date to start that day and watch the sun rise over your kitchen table with your husband getting ready for the onslaught, the battle of daily life. But a beautiful start there with the coffee. So, geez, I would say first priority is nurturing the relationship and wonderful morning rituals and not worrying about uh, whether it's kicking you out of the fasting club. Another interesting concept along these lines is the concept of the digestive circadian rhythm. We all know about the sleeping and waking circadian rhythm, uh, but the very interesting work by Dr. Sachin Panda at the University of California, San Diego, he was featured with some great YouTube and podcast interviews uh, with Dr. Rhonda Patrick and her awesome podcast and YouTube presence. And those guys talked at length about this concept that Dr. Panda has studied for a long time. And he makes some general recommendations that you should limit your food calorie consumption uh, for 12 hour, to 12 hours a day. That's shown to help enhance uh, immune function, fat metabolism, help people lose weight that are struggling, that are eating outside that window because the body does well when it's not digesting food. That's when immune function is enhanced and uh, so forth. Uh, but the second concept that he posed is that in the morning, you kind of want to wake up your digestive system too to align with the desire to wake up your 
central nervous system function and your physical energy. So starting your digestive clock kind of gets you going and revved up for a productive day. Uh, that was part of the rationale for me introducing the super nutritious morning green smoothie rather than striving to fast every single day until 12 noon. And Dr. Panda's work does indeed indicate that the ingestion of any xenobiotic substance, that means any substance that requires uh, breaking, breaking down and metabolizing, even coffee with no calories, even herbal tea, anything besides water really, uh, will start the digestive clock. So indeed, your clock starts, even if it was a coffee without cream, uh, the cream, the fat calories are going to start that digestive clock. However, you're not going to get an insulin response at 5.30 a.m. So in terms of uh, your keto aspirations, your uh, adherence to uh, primal paleo, low-carb, and becoming uh, metabolically flexible, that cream is going to be uh, burned in your bloodstream as energy, but it's not going to spike insulin. So it won't uh, compromise those goals. And whew, so that's 5.30. That's pretty early in the morning. That means you're done eating by 5.30 p.m. to align with Dr. Panda's recommendations. But again, if you're not perfect and you have another wonderful evening ritual that you're going to write in and describe next time, and it happens uh, when everybody's home and at the dinner table at 7.30, I'm going to say, you know, geez, the, the lost art of the, uh, the family dinner table as detailed by Eric Schlosser's wonderful book, Fast Food Nation, we've kind of blown that apart with our ability to just grab food on the go and eat it in front of screens rather than the old traditional rituals of generations past where everybody gathered at the dinner table, uh, we worked on the meal together, we prepared the meal, we cleaned up, and that uh, helped that family unity, that family bonding. So uh, those are the priorities. And then this digestive circadian clock, limiting it at 12 hours, would be a peripheral goal, but definitely a relevant goal. Uh, the work is very compelling. Dr. Panda and uh, Dr. Patrick talk about it at length. So kind of keep an eye on that digestive circadian clock and strive for a 12-hour maximum. So when you're consuming only fat calories, I wouldn't worry too much about how it's going to compromise your goal of becoming fat adapted. Uh, but that digestive circadian clock, see what you can do to uh, tighten it up to 12 hours. I know, it's funny because when I first saw the show, uh, with Dr. Patrick and Dr. Panda, I reference how uh, I like to have a little bit of dark chocolate, and sometimes it happens late at night. I don't notice the caffeine. I don't care. I can have chocolate and go to sleep. So I might be eating chocolate routinely at 9 or 10 p.m. and not realizing that the next morning with my uh, herbal tea or kombucha at 7 a.m., I'm not honoring the 12-hour window. So I've been mindful about tightening that up since uh, being exposed to that great information. Okay. Carla, is it abnormal to not be able to skip breakfast, lunch, and or dinner on keto? Is a person not fully adapted if they cannot intermittent fast at least through one meal during the day? I ask because I am that person. I've been on keto since June. No cheats, though I did eat two small meals where I did a minor carb up with plantains and another time squash. I don't think I broke 35 grams on those days. When I go too long without eating, I do feel hunger pains, get headaches, nauseated, low blood sugar attacks, and all the stuff I've been feeling my whole life. Yesterday, I thought I could skip lunch because of limited time during the middle part of my day and eat a larger dinner, but it didn't work that way. By 2 p.m., my body was insanely desperate for food. I do all the right stuff, sodium, I drown my insides with water, which actually makes it worse. I think she's talking about her hunger, but I can't seem to skip meals. 
I'm active four to five days a week with heavy weights. Oh, now we're solving the mystery. Detectives, get your notepad out. Because all the way up to here, we're wondering, why the heck can't you skip a meal, right? She's keto. She's strict keto for months and months, bothering to write about a couple days where she had some plantains or squash. So she's hardcore into this thing and seemingly very, very good at burning fat, whether it's from the diet and supposedly or perceptibly you could think she would burn uh, stored body fat very well and be able to function along. But she's working out four to five days a week with heavy weights and high-intensity interval training. I've been active for years, so it's not new to me. Before keto was primal, before that paleo, before that classic paleo, Atkins, vegan, macrobiotic. It's been a long time since I was on the standard American diet. Oh, I also have MS, Lyme disease, and hypothyroid. I also have PCOS, that's polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's in remission. I'm 39 years old. Sometimes I feel like a keto failure because I still live for regular three meals a day. What an interesting uh, question and story. Thank you for sharing it, Carla. I think we're going to get some uh, benefits out of this, and I appreciate you being, you know, completely candid and revealing. So it sounds like you're you're dealing with a lot of stuff, especially those uh, serious health conditions you mentioned at the end of the story. My first uh, reaction here is that when you're someone uh, battling those conditions and also reporting this very heavy workout schedule, I'm very concerned about that aspect in terms of the stress impact on the body the possible adverse impact of over-exercising. When someone reports to me that they work out four to five days a week with heavy weights and high-intensity interval training, a red flag goes up because I know from personal experience, one to two days a week maximum is all that I wish to do or ever could do in terms of high-intensity interval training or weights. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are devoted to CrossFit. They're going four to five days a week And I'm looking at these occasions as sort of ticking time bombs where you're destined for an eventuality of burnout, breakdown, illness, and injury. And yes, if it hasn't happened to you and you're listening, uh, let's, let's talk in a couple years if you're on this super extreme workout regimen. And all of us who are nodding our heads right now, including myself, realize that you can go and burn that candle at both ends and perform incredible fitness feats for months and months on end. Some people, if they're lucky, years and years on end, but you're destined to fall apart if your approach is overly stressful. I would argue that four to five heavyweight, high-intensity workouts a week could be cut back to the extent that maybe your best workouts are even better than what you're doing now. Because if you're going hard four to five days a week, by definition, your definition of hard is actually mediocre because you are never properly recovered to really go hard and put in a maximum peak performance effort. You're still recovering from the previous high-intensity interval session or heavyweight session. So my first urgent thing to do, especially with uh, MS and Lyme disease and hypothyroid, is to back way off on those workout patterns until you can report uh, exceptional energy, health, Uh, hunger stability at rest. I'm not super worried about your inability to skip a meal and that you have to eat three keto meals a day. Uh, We have a lot of particulars here. There's some genetic factors. We don't know all the answers yet. And so if you feel better eating regular meals and they're keto aligned, good for you for adhering so strictly to ketogenic eating. I'm sure that's helping your disease patterns, especially since they're autoimmune related. 
there's so much data and science. Dr. Terry Walls getting up out of the wheelchair and basically kicking MS with the ketogenic approach. So you're on the right track there. I just feel like the exercise one is that potential uh, setback there. And that constant state of hunger is possibly related to over-exercising. Furthermore, hypothyroid, uh, you've heard L. Russ talk about this a lot on her show. Um, that might be a, a consequence or at least a exaggeration factor where you're eating keto, so you're not eating a ton of carbs, but you're burning a ton of carbs in these tough workouts, and that might be a real stress on the body. So it might even be uh, a suggestion here to experiment with increasing your carbohydrate intake and reducing your workouts and just testing out some different approaches because uh, your complaint is uh, well substantiated, it's validated. Um, I, ideally, you, you'd want to be able to skip meals uh, just gracefully without any struggle, without falling apart at 2 p.m. That's kind of a disturbing story. But my first and foremost suggestion is to get that uh, over-exercising issue handled. How does that sound, Carla? Uh, go ahead and email back. We can discuss further. That's a, it's a pretty big deal. And I hope the best for you because you're working really hard and, and uh, really committed. So keep it up. Heather says, hey, I'm looking for info on cholesterol. My mom's toying with the keto diet for health reasons, but she's still concerned about cholesterol. I keep telling her dietary cholesterol has little effect on blood cholesterol. And not only that, cholesterol has little to do with heart disease, according to some experts. But we came across an article. Oh, don't you hate that? When someone says, I read an article that said blank. Uh, my shackles go up because there's articles that can say anything and everything that we can find and uh, substantiate our position. But, um, geez, I'm not even finishing the sentence, but that's my first reaction is like, hey, test it out and test your blood and you can see what happens with your cholesterol, especially the highest risk factor of that small dense LDL, which is often not even tested. Um, but the best way to track uh, your heart disease risk factor is that triglycerides to HDL ratio. Ideally, you want to get that one to one or better. It's urgent to get your triglycerides under 150, and it's also highly recommended or highly desired to get your HDL over 40. So at a bare minimum, you want to see HDL above 40, triglycerides under 150, and if you can get them one-to-one -one at 80 and 80 or 60 and 60 or something like that, that's fabulous, and it's also an indication that whatever your LDL cholesterol reading is, it's most likely the harmless, large, fluffy molecules floating around in the bloodstream instead of the problematic or the more potentially problematic small dense LDL molecules that are small enough to lodge on the walls of the arteries and become oxidized and kickstart the, uh, the journey to heart disease or stroke. So let's finish the poor sentence from Heather. Sorry, Heather. Uh, we came across an article that says, Di dietary cholesterol has little effect on blood cholesterol, but the real culprit is saturated fats. Hmm, isn't saturated fat dietary cholesterol? She thinks she can't do keto because cheese and coconut oil has too much saturated fat. So saturated fat is different than cholesterol. Those are different uh, molecules. But what happens is the reason we've had this uh, lipid hypothesis of heart disease for the last 50 years is because when you uh, consume a high-carbohydrate diet, produce too much insulin, are in an inflammatory lifestyle pattern, the saturated fat that you ingest and the cholesterol that you ingest does bad things in your body. They turn into plaque formation on the artery because of the oxidation and inflammation 
uh, consequences of a high insulin-producing diet. So sugar and grains and excess carb intake is the catalyst for cholesterol and saturated fat to do bad things in your bloodstream. I think that's a nice, simple, concise answer for a podcast, but if you look in the new Primal Blueprint, the masterpiece that you should have on your bookshelf as the, uh, the end-all to Primal Living, the, the manual, the Bible, uh, 600-something pages, and that's a complete revision and update of the original Primal Blueprint. So if you don't have that hardcover on your bookshelf, that's the resource manual to go and dog ear and look up the extensive commentary on cholesterol and why the lipid hypothesis is flawed because it doesn't recognize the influence of carbohydrates and also referencing the work of Gary Taubes and his incredible books, uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat and The Case Against Sugar, where he argues that there has never been a single study ever published to implicate saturated fat as being unhealthy in and of itself. Saturated fat is only a problem when it's consumed in this high-carbohydrate, high-insulin-producing diet. So we had it all wrong on saturated fat. Saturated fat's been consumed for millions of years. It's been one of the driving forces of human evolution where we started to consume higher-fat foods and develop complex brain function, and it's the uh, material that composes the membranes of our cells. It's completely healthy, uh, good energy source to consume in the diet, and is very stable. That's why uh, we use temperature-stable fats to cook with, like butter and recycled bacon grease, instead of the uh, unstable refined vegetable oils. So saturated fat is not going to cause any trouble unless it comes down the pipe with a whole ton of carbohydrates and you're oxidized and inflamed due to not only your high-carbohydrate eating pattern, but your high-stress lifestyle. How's that for mom? I appreciate mom being open-minded and at least thinking about trying keto, uh, but further education would be relevant. But most of all, instead of getting into a debate, I would say take a three-week period, ditch grains and sugars, okay, test your blood beforehand, and then test your blood after three weeks of a carbohydrate-restrictive diet where you're getting rid of those refined carbs, and you will see... uh, expect a good improvement in things like triglycerides and perhaps inflammatory markers and other indications that your health is improving. And that will be, that'll trump any article or study that you read, right? Even if it's from Harvard, Dr. Kate Shanahan going off recently about how Harvard was caught red-handed doing some corruption and uh, publishing some misleading uh, deceitful data way back when, when we were uh, on the on the express train toward uh, vilifying saturated fats and embracing these highly refined toxic polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So even the most respected institutions, the U.S. government, Harvard University, uh, they're not beyond um, uh, causing trouble and cutting corners and uh, spreading misleading information deliberately in certain cases. Maybe I'll get Kate on and we'll talk about this stuff because she's got some really interesting insights that'll help you with uh, further critical thinking. Richard asks, is there anyone in this keto group out of 23,000 people? I'm going to guess the answer is yes, uh, whatever he says. And his question is, anyone who's type 1 diabetic? I'm curious how a type 1 would go about keto if it's possible and any relevant information, please. I would first direct you to Mark Staley Apple and the success stories section where we have the remarkable stories of people who are type 1 
not type 2, but type 1, the genetic diabetes that is not dietary related, that they're born with, and they have been able to quote-unquote cure it. In other words, no longer require any insulin injections to handle their condition. So pretty much out of that category of diabetic due to uh, extreme dietary transformation, getting rid of the carbs and allowing the body to uh, get into this fat and ketone burning state where they no longer have those blood sugar fluctuations that are so problematic to diabetics that uh, can't produce insulin. So uh, plenty, plenty of opportunity for someone to succeed with keto as a type 1 diabetic. Melanie says, I'm six weeks in, six weeks into the keto thing. I run and do CrossFit. I'm still waiting for all this energy everyone keeps talking about. I'm slowly feeling better, but I'm still hungry, especially in the mornings and during my workouts. I couldn't even imagine doing fasting right now. What am I doing wrong? Hey, Melanie, congratulations. You're trying to improve your diet. Uh, You're healthy. You're fit. So don't worry about too much what you're doing wrong. Dialing in your approach so you don't struggle or suffer and you have good energy levels and no complaints. So there is a little bit of a challenge when you're pursuing ambitious fitness goals at the same time as restricting carbohydrate intake and going into keto. So much so that in the Keto Reset Diet, we recommend especially those first three weeks where you're into a commitment of strict nutritional ketosis, 50 grams of carbs uh, per day or less, that it's probably a great idea to really back off on your typical fitness regimen that has been partially or significantly fueled by carbs because you want the dietary transition to stick. You don't want to have those experiences of energy lulls or intense morning hunger, which are in part contributing factor uh, is your fitness regimen. So we know that uh, the workouts and the CrossFit class and everything will be there uh, at a future date when you're ready to, you know, get back into your normal fitness routine. But I would say dial back the overall caloric expenditure at workouts as you're trying to uh, adhere to a new type of eating and a restricted carbohydrate intake. And that should, uh, that should do the trick so that um, your energy goes up. Your energy level at rest is a really important indicator that I think a lot of athletes and fitness enthusiasts don't pay enough respect to. They feel crappy, they're tired at work, but at five o'clock they uh, head into the gym and get their spot uh, on the bike and go do an aggressive class. And over time, if you're having unstable energy levels during the day or declining energy levels, like you're just tired every morning when you wake up, but you're still doing an ambitious fitness regimen, you have to put those two and two together and realize that if you're not experiencing optimal energy levels during the day, you need to dramatically alter your exercise approach to the extent that, and this is coming from experience when I was racing on the tri-circuit and having these crash and burn periods where I'd be exhausted for three weeks, four weeks, even six weeks at a time, uh, to the extent that if you don't have good energy levels at rest, you should basically forget about your fitness regimen. Of course, you can exercise and walk around the block or pedal your bicycles at the farmer's market and bring home some kale and sweet potatoes uh, to up your carbon take a little bit while you're depleted and uh, something's off. But you know, for now, if you're trying to be keto and you're reporting these adverse effects, I would dial back those workouts to the extent that wait till your dietary transformation kicks in and then you can kind of ease back into whatever your goals are uh, with the CrossFit and the running. 
And another general blanket statement I'll make is that most people in the running, the endurance scene, and in the CrossFit scene are overdoing it as a routine pattern, as a basic practice. Too many workouts, uh, too many times at high intensity over the course of a week. And so that, uh, that characterization will really uh, compromise your progress, especially with keto. If you're stuffing your face with carbs and sugars and having your frozen yogurt every night and then waking up at 5.30 and doing the CrossFit class, you're going to have those glycogen stores refilled and you're going to be able to get through the class. Forget about all the stress and the immune suppressing and the accelerated cell division, uh, accelerated aging factors that are caused by high sugar burning and high sugar eating patterns, the unhealthy part of that, but it's going to get you there uh, if you insist on doing a crazy chronic workout pattern. So let's work on getting your energy level at rest, your day-to-day energy level nice and steady, and then think about the workouts. I would go so far as to say take a week off your actual uh, workouts and just uh, walk the dog around, do some stretches, do yoga class, and just see what happens to the body as you allow it to rest. Sometimes you kind of bottom out and you've really experienced the fatigue when you get off that that treadmill and that uh, stress fight or flight hormone production that occurs when you walk in the door of the exercise class or the CrossFit class. So let's back off on the workout, see if we can get a better report of not feeling so hungry and having more energy. And I think that's a, uh, a question that is relevant to so many people. So thanks for posing it. And that's a nice wrap up for a good show. Excellent questions. They're nice and concise. They're very relevant and opening up the uh, profound, deeper insights that I think can help a lot of listeners. So thanks for listening to The Keto Show. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Until next time, send us an email to info at ketoreset.com, especially a question for the show. We'll try to get to it. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. It used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind. We're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout, but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or 
in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.